Hi, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Who's That Then podcast. Today, we are going to start with a little interactive activity. Please do not do this if you are driving a car or operating heavy machinery. Safety first, gentle listener. Safety first. For everyone else, would you now please open up your favorite search engine? Go right ahead, I'll wait. I'm assuming that you've done this now. Would you please type the name Cleopatra? into the search bar. I am sure you are now seeing just this huge amount of controversy all about her. This controversy is about Netflix's new show about her, and specifically the casting. There are so many very intelligent and better educated people out there who are discussing this just incredibly delicate subject, and so in this episode, I'm going to be doing my best to present just the historical facts about Cleo. While some of these are still debated today, they have a far less prominent effect on the modern world. I also want to make a quick little note on dates here. BC dates count backwards, so 10 BC is much closer to us today than 100 BC was. I hope that helps to keep things clear as we move forward with the dates. Also, I'd like to note that I am going to be calling her Cleo. It's just so much easier to say than Cleopatra, it's a lot more fun, and I've decided that we're best friends. She's dead, she can't complain. So we're best friends. Anyway, with all of that said, let's get stuck into this episode about one of Egypt's best known and most important historical figures, who is just far, far, far more important than the historical swing, historical swing as she so often gets labelled as today. Cleopatra was born into Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt in either 70 or 69 BC. What is the Ptolemaic dynasty, I hear you asking? Well, gentle listener, cast your minds back all the way back to the life and times of Alexander the Great. Now, I know that we've never discussed Alexander the Great, so just a quick little rundown on him. He was a Macedonian king and world conqueror. He led an invasion of the Persian Empire, which was the largest empire of the world. This little detour is relevant to Cleo in Egypt, because Egypt is controlled by the Persians right up until Alexander the Not-So-Bad came along and took it from them. Now, Alexander the Pretty Pig went off and conquered the rest of the Persian Empire, Which was just excellent for him, but what wasn't so excellent was when he died in Babylon in 323 BC. This event shaped the history of the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean for the next roughly 300 years. After Alexander the Pretty Decent, I'm really enjoying these by the way, died, his empire was partitioned between leading generals in the rather uninventively named Partition of Babylon. This didn't really last long because each of the generals, or diadochi, wanted to be the one to reunite the empire under them. This led to the awesomely interesting Wars of the Diadochi. They are really, really awesome, but they unfortunately fall outside of the scope of this podcast. And so, for now, know that a series of really, really interesting wars were fought, a secretary became a legend, and Rhodes built this colossal bloke. Oh, also, the formal empire was partitioned again at a place named Treparadisis. One man who really succeeded here, his name was Ptolemy. Ptolemy is spelt with a P, by the way, which is just super fun for dyslexic podcasters, let me tell you. Ptolemy became first the leader of Egypt, but after everyone else started declaring themselves king, he too did the same, and he became the first pharaoh of the Ptolemaic dynasty. He was also played by Anthony Hopkins 2,000 years later. Jumping back to Cleo, her full name is Cleopatra VII, Thea Philopator, which translate from Greek, meaning Cleopatra, the father-loving goddess. 
Cleopatra itself means famous in her father, which is a really interesting fact, I think. And if anyone ever asks you, hey man, what does Cleopatra mean? You can say to him, famous in her father. Now, I don't know anyone who would ever ask that, but you have that just in case. Cleopatra's childhood isn't wonderfully written about. What we do know is, according to Plutarch, who was a Greek philosopher, historian, priest, and just a whole mess of other things, Cleo spoke at least nine languages. She was the first Egyptian ruler of the Ptolemies who actually spoke Egyptian. Now, this is hotly debated today. If she did actually speak Egyptian, from everything that I've read, it seems likely that she did. And she seems more than intelligent enough to be able to. Because she also spoke Ethiopian, Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, Persian, Parthian, Greek, and Troglodytic. Now, Troglodytic is an interesting word, isn't it? I did a little bit of research about it, and I found out that the Troglodytic people lived in the south of Egypt, and apparently lived mostly in caves. It's where we get the English word troglodyte from. So there's your fun fact for the day. Aside from her linguistic pursuits, Cleo was also a queen. She became queen in 51 BC when her father died. She was aged just 18. The only issue with becoming queen is that she had to marry her 10-year-old brother. Yeah, she did marry her brother, but it wasn't a practice that was specific to her or the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies and other Egyptian dynasties had been doing it for thousands of years, so it wasn't uncommon, even if it is very icky. As queen, Cleo modelled herself as the new Isis, Isis being the Egyptian goddess of healing and magic. Isis is her Greek name, by the way. Asa is her original name, which apparently translates to Queen of the Throne, which is pretty damn cool. And it's also why depictions of her have her wearing a specific headdress that looks like a throne, which again, is pretty awesome. However, this is not a podcast on deities, or at least not yet. So modelling herself on, I'm going to say Asset, because it was the original, was a really sensible idea because it distinguished her from Cleopatra III, who was an earlier Ptolemaic queen. Cleo being older than her brother meant she was the real power in Egypt. But shortly after her rise to goddess queen, she was forced to flee from Egypt to Syria. She was forced to flee by her brother's advisor. And here is a great tried and tested method if you at home, dear listener, ever find yourself the head advisor to a child monarch. Get rid of all other legitimate heirs, because that way, you, dear listener, actually rule. Child emperors don't want to be king. They don't want to rule people. That's boring. They just want to play. So keep them happy, and you are golden. Cleo was forced to flee in 49 BC. Now, our Cleo, she wasn't one for just sitting around and twiddling her thumbs and complaining, and so she started to raise an army of mercenaries. She turned her attention on events taking place across the sea. Over in Rome, which was the biggest power in the Mediterranean, everything was on fire. Civil war had broken out between two of the greatest generals that the Romans had ever had, and you best believe we're going to announce them like boxers. <coughs> in the blue corner, we have a man so great his name literally means it. He's the beast who conquered the east for Rome. He's battled the Persians and won. He's put down rebels in Spain and he's won. He's here now with nominal support from the Roman Senate. The man, the myth, the legend, Pompey Magnus. Yes, Magnus does also mean great. He's another man named the bloody great. And in the red corner, he's conquered Gaul for Rome. He didn't have permission to do this, but he doesn't care. He's Rome's leading priest, the Pontifex Maximus. He's governor of three Roman provinces and all of modern France. Former consul of Rome and a man who started a war so he wouldn't be arrested for starting a different war. He of the delicious salad, Gaius Julius Caesar.
<laughs> that was tremendous fun for me. God, I love doing this podcast so much. And just for clarification, Caesar had marched across the Rubicon River into Italy, which was a huge no-no for Roman generals. No active Roman general was allowed into Italy until he resigned his command or his time in office had ended. He did this because, just like today, people in office can't be indicted for a crime. They have legal immunity until their term is over. Caesar was trying to take his term as governor and transition immediately into consul, and then after that year as consul was over, immediately again into governor, extending his legal immunity for years and years. A consul, by the way, is one of the leading men in Rome. Imagine like a president or a prime minister. Every year, a con two consuls are elected, and whoever has the most votes take power first, and then they swap every month. Long story short, Rome was divided on this. You have some people who, like Cicero said, you know what, it's ridiculous that he's even asking for this, it's brazen and so weird, but if we just give it to him, politics can slowly get back to normal, we can start doing things the right way, and he'll just go away. You had others who were staunch believers in Caesar, and they were like, absolutely give this to him, this man deserves it, this man's a living legend, give him what he wants. And you have others, like Cato, who were wildly, wildly against it. Cato had actually said that as soon as Caesar's legal immunity had ended, he personally would prosecute Caesar. This ended up being a huge brouhaha on the Senate floor. I'm, I'm not really making this long story any shorter, am I? Sorry. So, long story even shorter. Caesar was told no by the Senate. He then raised an army and marched on Rome. And he marched on Pompey. Pompey was given power by the Senate to defend Rome. And just a little note on the two of them there. Pompey and Caesar had once been really, really, really close allies, along with another named Crassus, in something called the Triumvirate. It was a political organisation designed to help all three of them thrive. Also, the two were personally connected because Julius Caesar's daughter had married Pompey, and the two of them seemed to be genuinely in love. But at this point in time, they are bitter, bitter rivals. And thus, civil war. Oh, and also Caesar didn't have anything to do with the salad, but you smart cookies, I'm sure you already knew that. Caesar had won the civil war, and Pompey had ran to Egypt for help, because they owed him one. He had helped Ptolemy become king in the first place after the previous Egyptian monarch had died. He actually had it in his will that Egypt was to go to Rome. And so Pompey and Caesar had managed to keep Egypt for the pharaohs by accepting just the hugest, hugest bribes. So Pompey was of the impression that Egypt owed him one. Egypt was also fighting a civil war, of course. Cleopatra and her brother husband were at war. There's actually another queen in Egypt at this point, Cleopatra and Ptolemy's sister, who was named Arsinoe. She was on Ptolemy's side, and they were fighting against Cleopatra. When Pompey turned up, Ptolemy cut his head off. And then when Caesar followed shortly behind, he presented the head to Caesar. The people in Egypt knew that Caesar had won the civil war, and so they weren't going to help Pompey because they needed the winner's help to beat Cleopatra. Caesar agreed to stay in Egypt and arbitrate the issue for a while. This is where a really, really, really wonderful and well-known story about Cleopatra comes from. While Caesar was staying at the royal palace in Alexandria, Cleo got dressed in rags and she got onto a boat. This little boat sailed from Cleo's camp all the way to Alexandria for seven days up the Nile. And when they got there, she either climbed into a large rug, a basket of laundry, or a sack. 
that was carried by her Greek servant named Apollodorus. Apollodorus spoke Greek and Latin and he somehow managed to talk his way into seeing Caesar, telling them that he had a gift for him. Once in the presence, she rose out of the rug slash laundry basket slash sack. I imagine she wiped the loose socks from her face and she introduced herself to him. And in just one night, Caesar became besotted with her. Cleo is charming and intelligent and interesting and she's brilliant and clever and she's also a queen and I can't really say I blame Caesar for this. She really does sound quite incredible, doesn't she? Regardless of what happened during this meeting, Caesar agreed to help Cleo win back her throne. After some military silliness by Caesar and then some military cleverness, they escaped from Alexandria and joined up with allied forces which he had sent from from a man named Mithridates of Pergamon, who had about 13,000 men who were trained in the Roman style. There was also a small Jewish force sent by Antipater. Combined, the force together had about 20,000 men, and they met at a place called Pelusium on the banks of the Nile. They then fought a battle on the Nile, named the Battle of the Nile, wouldn't you know, and they won. They didn't just win, they also caused the king to die. The king drowned as he was trying to flee because so many people tried to get onto the boat. Arsenal was also there and they captured her and she was taken back to Rome. Cleo had now regained her throne and she had done it with the full force of the Romans. She then planned to use the Romans again to restore the power of the Ptolemy dynasty. As her husband had died, she was free to marry again and so this she did. However, it does get icky for modern audiences again because she does marry another one of her brothers. On the plus side... She and Caesar took a month-long pleasure cruise down the Nile, which I'm sure made both of them just very happy. Oh, I also want to say, Cleopatra is about 21 when she meets Caesar. He's about 50. So there is that. During her reign and Caesar's life, she made at least one state visit to Rome. She took her brother, husband, and her new son, who was named Ptolemy. Just like his father, brother, uncles, grandfathers... Uh, cousins, basically every other man in that family, because why should a family have to come up with more than one name? Names are really hard. For simplicity's sake, this boy had been nicknamed Caesarian, which means Little Caesar, so I'll let you take a guess on who the father was. He was also born about nine months after that pleasure cruise down the Nile. So, again, I'll let you take a guess, but I'm pretty sure I know who the dad is. This visit ruffled a lot of feathers in Rome, because even though Caesar was already married, that didn't actually matter to anyone. Caesar was a notorious adulterer. He actually, on his political rise, had a competition with his campaign manager, saying the winner was the one who could sleep with the most amount of teenage girls. I respect Julius Caesar for everything he achieved, but I really find it hard to like him as a person. It's actually also in Rome, it was kind of uncommon for people to be actually in love with their partners. Pompey, when he was married to Caesar's daughter, was genuinely in love with her, and people mocked him for it. In the Senate, they would go, hey, look, there's Pompey. He actually loves his wife. What a loser. So it wasn't that Caesar had a girlfriend. No, what really ruffled all of that Roman plumage is that Caesar had a golden statue of her made and placed next to the statue of Venus. This was a huge, huge no-no for the superstitious people of Rome. You just can't be doing that. Sure, have a girlfriend, but we're not going to pray to her. Cleo was actually in Rome when Julius Caesar was assassinated. He was the most powerful man in the world, but all of that power doesn't actually make you knife-proof. And so he was stabbed 27 times by an unknown number of assassins. 
this scene is actually so hectic that while they're stabbing at Caesar, in all the, the blood and mess and movement, they actually end up stabbing each other a lot. And although it's very famous, the famous et tu brute moment, it probably never happened. I mean, in all of the struggle and the fighting, how likely is it that you'll be able to see one person and summon all of the strength to talk to them specifically? Although, you know, if you choose to believe it like that, you go right ahead. This is, however, a story about Cleopatra. So what you do need to know, and this is cutting some really, really awesome history out, and I recommend absolutely everybody looks into this period. If you were to ask me, dear listener, what my favorite periods in history are, this area of the late Republic, early empire, sort of 100 BC to 100 AD is absolutely one of my absolute all-time favorite periods. But what you really need to know for today's story is that Cleopatra was in Rome during the assassination, but she escaped. There was huge, huge, huge fighting and intrigue. And Caesar's adopted son, whose name was Augustus, he wasn't actually called this yet, but that's what we're going to call him. He was called Octavian at the time, but Augustus is the name that history remembers him as. And a close personal ally and fellow soldier, Mark Antony, also as well as some other guy named Lepidus, took charge of Rome with the second triumvirate. Augustus had gotten the west, Antony got the east, and Lepidus got North Africa. You can actually forget about Lepidus, he's not important to our story, because after a couple of years, Augustus took over the land that Lepidus ran, and he forced him into a temple. So Augustus broadly has the west, and Antonius has the east. The idea was that no one had had Italy, and it was more of a shared thing. Cleo made it back to Egypt, which is where she watched all of this taking place. Mark Antony and Augustus, again, this is what we're calling him, were the two successors of Caesar's power. Antony seemed like the far more powerful one because Augustus was so often sick. Throughout his entire life, he suffered from a series of seizures and various different illnesses. We know that he caught malaria several times, but we're not sure what else he had. It's just too hard to tell over such a long period of time. I mean, we don't even know why Alexander the Great died. Mark Antony summoned Cleopatra to meet him in Asia Minor to explain her role in the Caesar conspiracy. Cleo was really, really good at understanding what people wanted and how to control them, and so she made him wait. She took her sweet time as she gathered all of these gifts as she sailed out of Egypt towards him in Asia Minor. And when she arrived, she arrived in splendor. She was laid down with gifts. She had these gorgeous ships and she was dressed as Isis reborn in all of her majesty. Safe to say, Antony fell hard. He fell so hard, in fact, that he forgot he had a wife in Rome who was actively trying to protect his political interests from a growing Augustus. Antony was a partier and he saw himself as the god Bacchus reborn anew. And so Cleo was just this natural partner to him as the goddess Isis. Bacchus, by the way, is the Roman name for the Greek god Dionysus, who is the god of wine and partying. In today's world, we'd probably call Antony a violent alcoholic, but back then, he was probably the most powerful man in the world. He went to Alexandria with Cleo and they started a cult. I mean, why not? Who hasn't accidentally gone on a trip and started a cult? Their cult was to the god Dionysus, and the people who lived there were said to live this life of debauchery and sex. Cleopatra gave birth to twins in 40 BC, and they named them Alexandra, Alexander Helios, meaning sun, and Cleopatra Selene, meaning moon. Antony had to go back to Rome for a short while to make a deal with Augustus. At this time, 
he agreed to marry Augustus's sister. Antony's wife, Antony's Roman wife, had died, though I doubt he actually cared about that. He had a literal queen as the mother of his children waiting for him in Egypt. He stuck it out for three years, but in the end, he returned to Egypt and to Cleopatra and cast out Augustus's sister. Her name was Octavia, by the way, and I can't help but feel sorry for her. These could not have been a happy three years. After returning to Egypt, he asked Cleo for an army because he planned to conquer Persia. Caesar had actually already planned to do this, but then he was killed, and that is a funny way of ruining your plans. In return, Cleo asked that Antony would conquer the former lands of Ptolemaic Egypt, the ones in southern Syria, in a place called Jericho, which is in Palestine, and large parts of modern Jordan. Now, it's safe to say this invasion went really, really badly. And I recommend everybody look this up to see just what a terrible blunder this was for Antony. I mean, the man actually turned down this huge army of Armenians who actually weren't asking for that much because he wanted to do it all himself. Antony most definitely was no Julius Caesar and he absolutely was no Alexander the Great. Regardless, they still threw this massive party for him in Alexandria called the Donations of Alexandria. I can't help but to think Cleo planned this rather than Mark because it's actually really impressive. Imagine this scene, if you will. Cleo and Antony are seated on these really tall golden thrones in the gymnasium. In front of them are their children sat on smaller thrones. Antony stands and he publicly declares to the world that Caesarian is Julius Caesar's child. Now, this was a really clever political move because Augustus's whole political identity was based on the fact that he was the only true legitimate heir of Julius Caesar. In Caesar's will, he had written that posthumously Augustus was adopted as his son. By saying, no, actually, Caesar has a legitimate child, he's undermining Augustus's very right to rule. Also at this meeting, Caesarian is hailed as King of Kings and Cleopatra Queen of Queens. Antony and Cleo's son was given Armenia and all of the lands past the Euphrates River, a river which you may remember from last week's episode on Khalid ibn al-Walid. Their daughter was given Cyrene, now, I looked it up, Cyrene is a city in modern Libya, and from all the pictures, it looks really nice. I'd love to go. Augustus watched all of this happen from Rome, and as soon as he had heard, he stood up and he stormed to the temple of the Vestal Virgins, which is very illegal. He then snatched Mark Antony's will, which is also very illegal, and he read it out loud to all of the Romans, telling them that Antony was trying to make the Republic his, and he was trying to give Roman lands to his children. And thus... A good old-fashioned propaganda war ensued. Augustus, reading this will out loud, said that Antony had planned to give Roman possessions to a foreign queen, and he was also planning to be buried there, despite already having a Roman wife. I mean, people, can you even believe this guy? Is what I'm sure Augustus didn't say, given that he wouldn't have spoken like that and he also didn't speak English. But that was his message. He went on to suggest that Antony was also going to move the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Alexandria. People went apoplectic. In the winter of 32 to 31 BC, the Senate stripped Antony of his consulship. It was guaranteed to him as a member of the Triumvirate, but they stripped it from him and they declared war on Cleopatra. This was huge. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. This is the showdown which will decide the fate of the Mediterranean world. Antony threw his lot in with Cleopatra and he raised an army in Greece. Augustus raised an army under the command of one of the coolest people who have ever lived. Now, I won't tell you his name, because we will be doing an episode on him very soon. Keep an eye out for it. 
But what I will say is this was going to be a naval battle and the Egyptians had the far larger fleet and they were patrolling the sea. So what he did is he built a lake inside of Italy to train his troops. That's how cool this guy is. Future episode, you listen out. The two forces met at the Battle of Axiom. This is it, people. This is the showdown. Cleopatra and Antony with the Egyptians on one side, the Romans on the other. Here we go for one of the most boring battles in world history. Yep, for as important as it is, and it changed the course of history for sure, this battle is just so boring. What basically happened was the Roman ships broke through the Greek line, the Greek-Egyptian line. Cleo saw this and then made a run for it. And then Antony seeing Cleopatra's flagship left, he also fleed. And the Romans won, just like that. What a boring battle. So why did Cleopatra run? Well, no one can say for certain, and it's up to you. So whether you believe the best in her, she had left to regroup and get ready for another fight another day. Or if you believe the worst in her, she ran away because she was a big old chicken. The truth, as always, is probably somewhere in the middle. It is up to you, dear gentle listener, what you think feels right. We can't know somebody's motivations today, and we definitely can't know somebody's motivations 2,000 years ago. What we do know is that this is right at the end of Cleopatra's story. She returned to Egypt, followed closely by Antony. Antony was abandoned by all of his Roman troops, who then left him for Augustus. And then Antony kills himself because he believes that Cleopatra had already done it. He finds out too late, and he's rushed to Cleopatra where he dies in her arms. That's quite a beautiful scene, and it's a scene that's been depicted in quite a few paintings, I think. Augustus then captures Cleopatra, but he still lets her perform Anthony's burial rites, which I think is very nice. She's then taken away. In captivity, she realises that she's going to be taken back to Rome and paraded through the streets as a trophy in Augustus's triumph. And so she reserved to kill herself. She actually tried several times and finally succeeded in August. And yes, August is the month named after her Roman capture. Although it wasn't called that yet, I'm sure it probably stung just a little bit now for all of those Cleopatra diehard fans. Now, according to Shakespeare, she died by snakebite. Now, I just personally can't believe that's true. She had access to this just huge amount of poisons, so why would she kill herself in this horrific, painful asp bite when she could go out with a painless poison? Regardless of how she died, she died at the age of 39. She had been queen for 22 years and the partner of Antony for 11. Her son Caesarion was killed by Augustus and her twins with Antony were taken to Rome to appear in the triumph. Nobody knows where she is buried. She and Antony are buried in the same tomb with some of her servants, but the location is as of yet unknown. There are some people who believe they may have found it and if that's true, that is so, so exciting. But the truth is, at the, co- at the time of recording this podcast, she and her burial site is still undiscovered. That's the story of Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt. Augustus annexed Egypt and made it into a full Roman province, and after that, never again has there been a single pharaoh of Egypt. There is so much about Cleopatra in media and historical fiction, places like Shakespeare, but they always paint Cleo as a seducer who corrupted good men and turned to this life of evil. That's the story Augustus presented, and it's one that's stuck. I hope that I have given a more balanced account of Cleopatra, one of her as a clever and intelligent person who, yes, did have sex with powerful men, and yes, was the last rule of her country, but she still achieved amazing things 
and she did great stuff along the way. And one final fact about her, which I've learnt recently and I find really ultimate blew my mind the first time I heard it. Cleopatra was actually born closer to the first moon landing than to the construction of the Great Pyramid. How mind-blowing is that? That's how old Egyptian culture is and I recommend everybody go away, look up more about Egypt. It's so incredible. It's, it's amazing. I know I'm going to and I can't endorse it enough. Anyway, I can feel myself flying off into Egypt. So let me let you go. But let me just say, remember we do have the Instagram and the email, which is who's that then podcast, all one word. And I've recently been told that you can rate podcasts now on places like Spotify and Apple. So please, if you enjoy the show, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us to grow and gain more listeners. It makes it easier to put out more episodes. And with that, thank you. Thank you all for being here with me for this episode. I also know that this episode is being released on my brother's birthday. So happy birthday to you, Mason. Happy birthday to anyone if it is their birthday today or if it's their birthday this week. If you know somebody whose birthday, why not tell them all about this podcast? I am sure they will thank you forever. Anyway, until I see you again, have an excellent week and make sure you're all staying safe out there. Bye-bye for now.